I invite you to open to our scripture passage today, and um, we're looking now at the end of scripture, Revelation 22, uh, verses 1 to 7. So, Revelation 22, 1 to 7. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Then the angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. And this is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would speak to us uh, today from your inspired word. We pray that you would build us up in Christ, that you would help us to be faithful to these words, and to show us that hope of heaven that is so close. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, well, uh, for this Advent series, I think I've used a military illustration for every sermon so far. And this week I said, I've got to pick something else. But I couldn't think of anything else. So if you bear with me, I've got one more. And then we'll take a long break for several months at least. <laughs> but it was 21 some years ago, uh, an 18-year-old me was finishing up Marine Corps boot camp in San Diego and then north in Camp Pendleton. And at the end of boot camp is something called the crucible. It is the final test before you can earn the right to be called a Marine. And at the end of the crucible, we were almost done. We just had one 10-mile hump left with all our gear from where we were out in the field back to our barracks. Now, every hump that we had done in boot camp, there were always a few that would get dropped off the back. They couldn't make it. They got injured. They were just too tired. But on that hump, no one fell back. And it wasn't because we didn't hurt. That 10-mile hump came at the end of some 40 miles of hiking over the last two days. We didn't fall back because we weren't tired. We were all exhausted. The past two nights, we'd each slept maybe three to four hours each night. And it wasn't because we were full of energy from being well-fed, no. We'd been given one meager meal each day for the last couple days. But not only did no one quit on that hike, but we even sang joyful songs as we walked down the road. And the reason why is because on that final 10 miles, we had just, or right before that, we had climbed the Reaper which is this legendary mountain in, uh, near the hills of San Diego, north of San Diego, that is so steep that it's common to see guys, as you climb up it, 
topple backwards from the weight of their pack and keep rolling all the way down the hill. But when we got to the top of that mountain, our drill instructor stepped in front of each one of us and placed in our hands that sacred eagle globe and anchor and told us something they had earlier said we'd ne likely never hear, which was, congratulations, Marine. We'd made it, but we weren't home yet. We still had to walk down the backside of that mountain, back to our barracks, some 10 miles away. And awaiting there, near our barracks, was the warrior breakfast, which was all of the sausage and eggs and cinnamon rolls and bacon and hash browns and more that you could eat. Now, let me tell you, after not eating much for two days and then stuffing yourself with sausage and cinnamon rolls, your stomach doesn't thank you, but we didn't care. We feasted. And we walked to that warrior breakfast, though our bodies hurt and our blisters, our feet were covered in blisters. Some of us even dozed off while walking. No one gave up. No one said, I can't keep going. No one said, I'm going to fall to the back. We wanted that warrior breakfast. We could smell the bacon and eggs, and we were so close. So we kept walking. We'd made it, but we weren't home yet. And Christians live in a similar tension, don't we? On one hand, we've made it. Christ has redeemed us, but we aren't home yet. Christ has come, yet so much in our world is still broken. And because we aren't home yet, sometimes the pain of the present causes us to lose sight of how close we actually are. A great feast awaits us. In this Advent, we're looking at this theme of how hope breaks in, how the hope of God breaks into our broken world. And just as God's people of old waited for the Messiah to come, we also wait for that Messiah to return, to bring us home, to make all things right, to take us into that feast of heaven. So what I want us to remember this morning is Christ is coming soon. Christ is coming soon. We're going to look at this just under two points. First, the hope of Eden, and then second, a close hope. So the hope of Eden. Our passage is dense with this imagery. It's maybe something like chewing on thick 12-grain bread. And when you think you're done chewing, you find a new seed, and there's more flavors to unlock. We weren't going to trace all of the imagery here, but does the description, as I was reading our passage, remind you of anything else in the Bible? Maybe it reminded you of the Garden of Eden. A really good study, if you have some time this week or this afternoon, would be Read the first two chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, and then read the last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22. And as you read, note all of the similarities between these two passages. It's no accident that these are the bookends of the Bible. There's a tree of life here, like there was in the Garden of Eden. There is a great river that flows out from the center of the city, like in Eden. And there is no more curse here, just as there was in Eden, as it was free from the curse of sin. But then what are some of the differences? Well, we notice that what we have here is actually better than Eden. The tree of life is growing on both sides of the river. And in Eden, the tree of life had this ability to heal, and now the nations have actually been healed by it. We might wonder, well, how is this one tree growing on both sides of this river? Perhaps it's maybe something like an aspen grove. The tree of life has multiplied and through its network of roots, and now it is filled and filled both sides of this great river. The tree of life has multiplied. There is more than enough healing for everyone who needs it. 
The, the garden has modernized. It's become a city. And there's this large divided highway running through the middle of it. And in the center strip of that divided highway is this river that contains the water of life. And this river is maybe something like State Street here in our valley, where every one of us, your east-west address comes from how far off you are from State Street. It's this kind of defining reference point for our entire valley. And if you head north on State Street, it'll lead you right up to the Capitol building. And in a similar way, if you follow that river, it will take you right to God's throne. And from his throne flows the water of life. God is the defining reference point in this new Eden. Everything is centered around him. There's also no more sun in this new Eden. Now, this is kind of a strange thing because it says God is their light. And I mean, one of the ways that you torture people is by subjecting them to bright light for 24-7. You know, and so, so what is going on here? Like, are we not going to sleep? That sounds, well, I'll go a little crazy, right? If there's no night, no sleep. But this is a good reminder that Whenever we understand scripture, we need to understand, well, what is the point of this? Is, is this something that we need to take very strictly literally? Is this figurative telling us something greater? We can't take the language here, and in much of Revelation, too literally, because we run into various problems. For instance, if we don't have the sun, we don't have our standard way of telling time. But then it says the tree of life gives fruit every month. How do you know what a month is if there's no sun to measure the month? And, and how are the seasons for fruit to grow if there's not these traditional cycles of the sun? And what kind of tree can produce a new crop of fruit every single month? Instead, what this is getting at is not kind of the technical schematics of what this new earth and heaven looks like, but it's giving us symbols to a greater reality that paints a grander picture, that the light of God's presence fills every corner of this new creation. There is no place where God's presence is not. And one of the things that means is there is no corner in it where evil can hide. There are no dark alleys in God's new city. There's no place where robbers can let, uh, hide out and wait for unsuspecting people to pounce on. There is nothing to be afraid of. When I was in Kenya last month, I was invited over to Pastor Tony's house for dinner. So Pastor Tony is at Grace Baptist Kasumu, where Amos is at, and he is the pastor who came after Pastor Sam when he went to plant the church in Nairobi. And uh, I had been staying with Pastor Sam at his house in, in the country outside of Kasumu, but because of just limited transportation and the difficulty of transportation, if I was going to go have dinner with Pastor Tony, it meant I would have to spend the night there because there's no way to get me back to where I'd be at Pastor Sam's house after dinner. And now the prior day, uh, Pastor Tony had been telling me how one night, a couple months back, as he was walking from his, the church to his home, he had been mugged and his phone and, and a few other things had been stolen. In fact, probably in most of Africa, everyone in Kenya will tell you mugging is a huge problem in the cities during the day, but especially at night. It is not wise to be walking around at night because it is so unsafe. And so I was going to be giving this devotional at the church on Wednesday night, and then it would get dark, got dark early there, and then I would go to his house for dinner with his family. And I was excited to meet his family and to spend more time with him, but honestly, the first question that popped into my mind is, 
are we going to be walking to his house? Because <laughs> he had just told me about how he'd been mugged. He didn't have a car, and I assumed, well, we will probably walk, and I didn't want any special treatment. And so I figured, well, let me prepare for this. And I took everything out of my bag and out of my pockets that I wasn't willing to lose. I went in with the assumption with on the walk from the church to his house, this, you know, the one white guy I'd seen in the entire city is probably going to get mugged walking at night through these streets. And in biblical times, uh, and for many today around the world, the night is a dangerous time. It's the domain of robbers and criminals and evil. And when it came time to head to his house after the Bible study, I was ready. It's like, this will make for interesting stories, I'm sure. And then to my surprise, there was a car waiting out there. He'd called an Uber <laughs> to take us from the church to his house. But in this new creation, there is no place for evil to lurk. No unknowns, no shadows that you wonder what's hiding there, what's in that alleyway, what was that sound? There is no need to lock your doors at night because there are no threats. Complete safety. You sleep in peace. Now, there's one other key difference between the original Eden and what we have in our passage. There's no tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you know the original story, you know that the presence of that tree always meant there was a chance that all of the good of Eden could be lost. It was like the concrete of that first Eden was still curing, and if an Adam and Eve weren't careful, their footprints might get all over it and ruin the beauty of it. And we know Adam and Eve ruined it. They ate from the tree, and that one little act of disobedience brought all the sin and suffering and death that is in our world right now. But guess what? In this better Eden, there is no tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what that means is that things can't get messed up. There is no possibility of downfall. The concrete has cured, and nothing is going to mess it up. And, and tied to this fact that the, is that the light of God is everywhere. There are no places for pesky snakes to hide and come in and, and mess it up. Think of this way. God has hired an exterminator <laughs> named Jesus, and he took care of that snake forever. And this means that we are travelers right now to a new and better home where there is no possibility of evil ever even brushing against us again. It's better than the original Garden of Eden. It is Eden 2.0 without the chance of pain. So do you long for that home? Do you realize, as dark as things might get right now, as many worries press down on your soul, that you are going to a place where there will be no need for locks and security systems ever again, and where your wounds and your traumas have been transformed into testaments of the healing power of that tree of life on your soul and on your body. And this leads us then to our second point, a close hope. Now, you might know that that is out there, but it can feel like that is so far away from where you are right now. And the darkness of the present, it just pulls you right down so that any thoughts of a, a better hope seems so far away, it's almost pointless. And yet, we need to remember that this book of Revelation was written to seven churches nearly 2,000 years ago. 
Revelation has got to be one of the most misinterpreted books in, in all of the Bible. And, and I think one of the most important things for however you interpret it, you've got to take into account that it was originally written for seven struggling churches 2,000 years ago to provide them with a close hope. So that whatever everything else in Revelation means, somehow it applied to them in their situation and saying, this is your hope. And what do we know about those churches? Well, they had all suffered in many ways. Some had suffered patiently and did not lose their faith. But some had grown weary of their love of God and, and had become lukewarm. Some were about to experience even greater persecution. Some under the, that stress from the society had compromised in their beliefs. Some had turned a blind eye to some of the evil in their own congregations. Some were drifting from the faith. None of them could look around in their world and have anything to point to and be optimistic about. They say, oh, look, things are getting better. I think our life is going to get easier. No, every one of those churches is deep in struggle, and they see dark storm clouds on the horizon. And in some ways, in some ways it sounds a lot like what we might be facing. And what does John, the author of Revelation, point them to to encourage them? Well, the one thing he does, which is the bulk of the book, is he pulls back the curtain on this great drama that is unfolding in the world between good and evil. And he says, look, this, you are part of this cosmic fight between what is good and what is evil, but guess what? God will win in the end. And then he says, look here, there's coming a better Eden for you. The best is yet to come. Don't lose hope. Don't let the darkness of the present overshadow the reality of what is so close. And what that means for us is that Christians are future-oriented. The best is always yet to come. And we need to remember that right now, today, in your struggles. Maybe you're struggling to pay all the bills this season. Maybe this is the first Christmas with an empty seat at your table. Maybe depression casts a shadow over everything. Maybe you thought this Christmas is going to be better, but it turns out it's going to be worse than last year's. And Christmas can sometimes only heighten those feelings of despair. It feels like a time where you're supposed to wrap pretty wrapping paper over your broken heart and act like everything's okay. And we feel this tension in Christmas. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, he captures it in this poem I've read before. It was Christmas, and yet, as the bells of Christmas Day were ringing, he sat by his son, who had been critically injured in the Civil War. And he's weeping over his wounds. And he writes, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and mild and sweet their songs repeat, of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And that feels just as applicable for us today as at any time. And yet Revelation shows us that tension will not always be there. No matter how dark it gets, don't lose hope. Jesus is coming soon. 
The best is yet to come. Maybe that struggle that you feel, that weight, is because of your own sin or your own addictions, a failure that weighs on your heart. Maybe you hate yourself and how you've screwed up this year. You feel like a failure for certain things you've done. And yet, even in that case, I can confidently tell you the best is yet to come. I mean, think about it. Adam and Eve, when they found themselves out of the garden, it's hot, it's dry, there's not these beautiful shade trees and fruit coming from the trees. They had actually tasted how good perfect is. And now imagine how must it must hurt to have that garden in the rearview mirror and be looking forward towards a desert of suffering and death. And yet, in that moment, when they would feel the weight and the consequences of their sin, God still came to them in their failure and said, Adam and Eve, it doesn't end this way. The best is yet to come. We can imagine them responding, really, God? The best is yet to come because I was in Eden, and that was pretty good. And now I'm out here, and I'm hot, and I'm getting sunburned, and I'm going to die in the desert. No, Adam. The best is yet to come. This Eden wasn't finished. It was just the beginning. There's a better Eden that awaits. You see, God's power is such that our sin does not derail his plan. It does not alter his plan but he works through even our sin and our failure to bring us to something better. An Eden that can never be messed up. One in which your wounds have been healed in the deepest places. This also means that if your life is good right now, don't forget the best is yet to come. Don't let the good things that you have right now distract you from the great things that await. Don't let the promise of Good things tomorrow distract you from the promise of greater things in the life to come. There's a story in the Old Testament about these two brothers, Jacob and Esau. And they were born into a wealthy family. And because Esau was the firstborn, he was entitled to the greater inheritance. Esau was kind of this this wild man. And he spent all day, you know, he loved being outside. And one day he'd been outside all day and he came home hungry and exhausted. And Jacob, the younger brother there, is cooking some stew. And he says, I need some food. Give me some of that, you know, that warrior breakfast. And Jacob was crafty, though. And he knew that Esau was, you know, thought by his stomach more than his brain. And he said, well, I'll give you this stew if you give me your birthright. And Esau replies, look, I'm dying of starvation. What good is my birthright right now? Esau, in that moment, gave up what was so much more valuable for immediate gratification. And how easy is it for us, for the immediate gratification of this thing that you really want at work or in your home or in your life, or just to get rid of some of this pain, that you lose sight of the best that is yet to come? Have you gotten so focused on the things of this world that you've lost sight of the eternal things? What is it you're setting your hope on? What is it that you're hanging your hopes on that say, if I get this, then I'll be happier. If this could happen, then everything will be all right. Friends, are you hanging your hopes on things that in the end will only be destroyed by moth and rust? Or have you rested your hope in riches that will last for eternity? 
What is your heart wrapped up in? What do you think you need to be happy, to be fulfilled, to have a good life? Don't let your pursuit of good things, blessings from God, money, a career, family, whatever it might be, don't let your pursuit of those overshadow what is better. Jesus, God on his throne, and you drinking from the tree of life forever. The best is yet to come. You will see God face to face. And what does John, the author, want to leave these seven struggling churches with? We're at the end of the book, and it's the words at the end of our passage, words from Jesus that echo from his throne there in verse 7. Look, I am coming soon. Now that was written some 2,000 years ago. None of these churches exist today that we read about. So how could Jesus say to them, look, I'm coming soon, and 2,000 years have passed? That doesn't sound like soon to us. Many of us, though, probably the way you feel the Christian life is like is climbing the reaper, (laughs) that mountain that we all struggled to ascend in boot camp. And each day feels like another battle, and you're worried about slipping and rolling all the way down to the bottom. But what I want you to see here is that the Christian life is actually more like when we were on that hike going on the, down the backside of the reaper to the warrior breakfast. But though we hurt, though we limped, though we tottered, no one gave up because we knew we were close. The hard work was done. We could smell the bacon and the cinnamon rolls. And Jesus can tell those churches back then, and he's telling you today, behold, I'm coming soon. Because he's not looking at you, waiting for you to get to the top of the reaper. But he has already ascended to Calvary. And there he did all the hard work to make sure you'd get home. And on the top of that mountain, he wasn't told, congratulations, you made it, Jesus. You were the first one up here. You get the gold star. No, but you know the story. He was sentenced to death as a sinner the worst of sinners, because it was our sin that held him there. Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with the deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Why is it that we can say we're close to home? Because everything that would keep you from making it there, every sin, every failure, every strain, God has laid every single one of those things on Christ, and he has dealt with them finally. He looked at that list of all your sin and said, it's mine now. It's no longer yours. 
Anything that would keep you from God, it's mine, and you're free, and you're forgiven. And it's more than that. That bit in our passage about our names being written, or his name being written on our foreheads, verse 4. That sounds kind of like a, a weird, you know, tattoo thing, but it's another one of those references that is significant. In the Old Testament, the high priest would put a, a turban on his head, and on it, it would say, holy to the Lord. And it symbolized that that priest, after having gone through all of these purifications and washings, is now pure. He reflects the holiness of God. And do you see what our passage is saying? It's not just one high priest that puts on that turban after doing all this stuff. You have been not just forgiven, you have been filled with the very righteousness of Christ. So that when God looks at you, he sees the very beauty of Jesus, his perfect son, shining through you. You will be holy to the Lord. No more ugliness, no more shame, no more unworthiness. You will have been made beautiful from the inside out. When you look to Jesus, the hope of Christ breaks into your life. And it begins this process that cannot be broken. God has staked his very name on it, that you will make it home. That when God looks at everything that he has done to make sure you make it home, he said, you don't realize how close you are. Christ has done the heavy lifting. We're just on that walk, down that road, though we hurt, to that breakfast, that feast that God is preparing for us right now and for all his people. And that puts our life into perspective. That puts today into perspective. So that we can say with Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, For our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them all and will last forever. So we don't look at our troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on the things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone. But the things we cannot see will last forever. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your certain and sure word. We pray that that would reorient the timeline of our lives and the suffering and the struggles and the weights that we are carrying right now. And we pray that you would help us to even smell that food of heaven that you are preparing for your people. That we would get a taste through your spirit of those waters of life that we experience now and one day we'll bathe in. And we pray that you would help us to know you are coming soon. And that that would encourage us to know we will be there. We will make it home. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.